going to start recording. All right, it's now recording. And we're going to have our music. Hi, I'm Crawford Wiley, an organist in Milwaukee. Okay, let's start over. Where am I? Where am I? I'm in Paris, France. Hi, I'm Crawford Wiley, an organist in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, just outside Milwaukee. And I'm Sarah Barisa, a researcher and church musician living in Cincinnati, Ohio. This is Music and the Church. Today's episode is brought to you by our monthly newsletter. Our December edition is coming out on Sunday, and it's packed with all things Advent and Christmas. If you're interested, you can subscribe to the newsletter by going to musicandthechurch.com and clicking on the Join Our Newsletter button. Today, we're talking with Dr. Carrie Allen Tipton about bringing a researcher's toolbox of strategies to the Ministry of Church Music. We'll also discuss her podcast, Notes on Bach, and how learning about Baroque music and theologies of music relates to being a church musician today. But first, let's talk about Advent. It's my favorite season of the year, actually. Oh, really? Advent is? Yeah, it's my favorite season. And not yeah, Christmas? That is correct. Interesting. It has basically the best music of the year, except perhaps for... I don't know, December 24th in the evening, which also has great music. Yeah, I mean, that's true. That's true. So today's Try This at Church is for your Advent or Christmas party if you have one for your choir or music program. And the tip is, if you have alcohol at your party, make sure that you have something just as nice to drink that is non-alcoholic. And I learned this tip when I was singing a Vesper service at an Episcopal church. And one of the, uh, one of I guess, the policies of the church was that if your function served alcohol, you had to have something just as nice that was non-alcoholic. And I think that this is just a wonderful idea because so often people who drink alcohol think, oh, well, the other option is water, right? Or maybe coffee. You don't put a lot of thought into the other option. Yeah. You get, you get some wine and then you have water out of the tap. And... There's so many nice non-alcoholic options, and this is, I think, really important for a church to have. You don't know anyone's story, and you don't know they might be two weeks pregnant and haven't told anybody. Yeah, All yeah, kinds yeah. of reasons why people don't drink alcohol. It's a hospitable option. Yes, yes, exactly. So if we're thinking about this in terms of hospitality, this is a way to show love to everyone in your choir or your music program at your party. If you're in a church where you serve alcohol at functions, make sure you have something really nice that's non-alcoholic. So next up for our In the Field segment, we're going to talk about the Weeks of Advent, and we're going to mention a lot of music. We have links to all of this in the show notes, musicandthechurch.com slash blog slash episode five. We're also going to have a link to a great resource on Advent music in churches that aren't necessarily following electionary. It's from Ashley Daniels blog. So today we're going to talk about the four Sundays of Advent. And I've been working with the four Sundays of Advent for, you know, a while. It's a pretty common thing for the last, like... They don't really catch you off guard. <laughs> yeah, but but something that I didn't quite have a solid understanding of until recently is that the four Sundays have repeating themes across the three years of the lectionary cycle. Yeah, which means that in terms of planning, you don't necessarily, if you play your cards right, need to plan new hymnody for each year of the lectionary. You can pretty much reuse your hymns from year to year. Mm -hmm. Not that you must, but that it's not, you don't have to recreate out of whole cloth again. I think that in the past I had thought, oh yes, there's all these themes of anticipation and John the Baptist is there and Mary is there. And I didn't quite realize, oh, the fourth Sunday is a Marian Sunday. Oh. Right. You can kind of feel as though Advent is just a free for all of Advent hymnody and- Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Let's just sing that. <laughs> every Sunday, you know, but I mean, there are worse things. <laughs> 
So Crawford, what is the theme of the first Sunday of Advent? So the first Sunday of Advent usually involves themes of waking up and preparing for the coming of God. It's very Mm. eschatologically themed. So for instance, we almost always sing at St. Jude's, wake, oh, wake, for night is flying, the Lutheran chorale, wachet auf. Mm-hmm. which is perfect for the themes of that Sunday. If you're in a church where non-English texts are suitable, that chorale setting in the Bach cantata is actually quite accessible to a choir and to a tenor soloist. Oh, yeah. And it makes a great postlude, oh, yes. by the way. If you're trying to plan organ voluntary music, you can sing that as one of the hymns and mm-hmm. knock out a postlude. Here's a question that I have. I just pulled up my, here's what I'm planning to do for December 1st, Advent 1. And I also have hymns that are like, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, Jesus, Savior of the Nations Come. So they are more generally Advent-themed. Right. And you're definitely going to have some hymns that don't relate specifically mm-hmm. to any of these Sundays. For instance, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, like the classic Advent hymn of the 20th mm-hmm. century that mm-hmm. we think of now, is not specifically related to mm-hmm. any of the four mm-hmm. Sundays of Advent, since it takes as its inspiration the O antiphons, which don't even begin mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. right before Christmas. And moving on to Advent 2, there's not that many hymns related to the theme of Advent 2. Yeah, which is John the Baptist. Baptist heralding the arrival of Christ. So you've got on Jordan's bank, the Baptists cry. What's the other one? We sing to Ronde Adieu. Uh, escapes me at the moment. I'm sure that someone listening will remember what it is, though. <laughs> anyway, there's like there's like two or three good John the Baptist hymns for Advent. Well, one that I just love is the Fred Pratt Green, When Jesus Came to Jordan. But that is, in fact, a Theophany or Epiphany hymn. It's not particularly relevant to Advent. Oh. Yeah. So again, if you have a good John the Baptist hymn, the second Sunday of Advent is the perfect time mm-hmm. to sing and it. you know, I don't think, all, I mean, I know not all hymnals have a John the Baptist hymn in them. So you might want to look for something for a choir anthem or something like that. Yes. Then the third Sunday of Advent is in the Roman tradition called Gaudete Sunday from the opening words of the introit for the day. Mm-hmm. And it's a Sunday, kind of like Laetare Sunday in Lent, uh, which is marked by rejoicing in the middle of a penitential season. Mm, which it's easy to forget because Advent in the secular world is the time of Christmas parties. Yes, it's easy to forget the penitential aspect of Lent altogether mm-hmm. and Advent. Well, not Lent, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you're doing your Advent right and you're feeling very penitential, the third Sunday of Advent is a good time to feel less penitential. (laughs) Um, So I'm thinking... (laughs) Now, how are you doing your Advent this year? Well, I'm doing it right. (laughs) Yes. The right way to do Advent is to feel very, very sad, except on the third Sunday of Advent, and you feel quite happy. Uh, so we really pick really, really joyful hymnody. And I'm thinking one of the great hymns that people love to sing is People Look East. Mm, it's just yes. far I love that tune. One. It's a good text. Oh, and I, I am always tempted to play it so fast. Oh, that oh, one, I know, I know, and I now know. the green blade rises. I'm like, dun, 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 ba, ba, da. Oh, yes. I need to go yeah. slower. <laughs> oh, you see your fifth graders singing it. I don't know anyone who can sing great. it that fast who's in the pews. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, maybe I need to find an instrumental version of it so I can just blast through it. <laughs> Yeah. So, no, but the, go ahead. The third Sunday of Advent is a really good time to sing something more upbeat. You don't necessarily want to open with people look east on the first Sunday of Advent because that's that's awfully anticipatory. But by the third Sunday in Advent, we are beginning to think more about Christ's coming in the nativity instead of just Christ's coming in judgment. I'm wondering, do you think the peace from the Messiah and the glory of the Lord would be appropriate for that Sunday? 
I think it could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you have a choir who delights in pieces from the Messiah besides the Hallelujah Chorus, that could actually be a really fun. Yes. Yes. And that's something that I, I think you mentioned earlier is that you may not necessarily have a large enough repertoire of Advent hymnody to be able to select a specific hymn for each of these Sundays that reflects mm-hmm. the readings. But you probably have something pretty close in your choral repertoire. The mm-hmm. choir, yes. the yeah. choir can learn something. Mm-hmm. Or, and it's always worth remembering this, you can have your choir sing a four-part hymn. Oh, that reminds me the hymn Comfort, Comfort Ye My People, which is really great early in Advent, right? Especially the first Sunday. Yes, yes. It's so good if it's just the four-part version. It's great. And you can you mm-hmm. can also do it if you want to have the choir alternate with a congregation. It's also an excellent excuse to get out a tambourine. Oh. Not that we need excuses to bring out the tambourine. No, no, no. <laughs> you do the tambourine, Sarah. So... <laughs> Y'all, Crawford is sitting over in his living room with this, like, horrified look on his face. Oh, no, no, no. You do the tambourine. People love tambourines. Oh, my word. I got, I got, I got a, a tumba this past Sunday. I thought, um, <laughs> I was like, is this, a, is this a congo? Is this a bongo? And the, the drum player said, no, this is a tumba because it's a bass drum. And it was wonderful. <laughs> so what exactly is that? What is the, what is the shape? It is a long sphere that curves in at the top, and it's probably about two feet long. And it sits on a stand, or at least in this, this drummer, it sits on a stand for him. And it has a really deep, resonant sound. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. We did the um, Andre Crouch piece soon and very soon. And, you know, I, I had um, a certain family member who shall remain anonymous who said, well, I'm going to clap on two and four whether or not you have a drummer. So I was like, I should get a drummer in. <laughs> <laughs> It was really in that good. case, just go for the drum. Oh, yes. So let's talk about Advent 4. Yeah, so this one is a little bit more tricky because... Oh, and this year it's tricky because it's also Christmas Eve. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a whole nother story. Yeah, so it is also Christmas Eve that evening, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but leaving aside the difficulties of the calendar this year... I mean, can we talk about April 1st and Easter? <laughs> Ash can Wednesday? Can we talk about St. Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday? Yeah. Today is a great day to give your love the chocolates they have just given up. Uh, so, anyway. <laughs> so, Advent 4. It's terrible. Yes. So, Advent 4 takes on a strong Marian theme in the gospel readings, uh, regardless of the lectionary year. But the story changes each year. Yes, 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 it does. But the readings are definitely more Marian in focus. So if your inner tradition doesn't have a large repertoire of Marian hymnody, this might strike you as a little bit difficult. But Sarah, you have some ideas about things that you can sing, even if singing hymns about or to Mary is not really part of your liturgical tradition. I feel like in many Protestant churches, it can seem a little bit odd to sing about Mary, but in fact, she's the mother of our Lord. Even if you're in a tradition that doesn't commonly have Marian hymnody, what you can do is simply sing the Magnificat, which I don't think anyone can really object to because it's simply the setting of a scriptural text. There's a couple different settings that can work depending on the tradition that you're in. Sing out my soul, the greatness of the Lord is one of the wonderful English language settings of the Magnificat. The Canticle of Turning is another one that's in many, many hymnals. And um, Crawford and I have discussed this hymn several times. I forget, how does how does the Canticle of Turning go? My soul, dun, dun, da, da, dun, dun, dun. I think it's the star of the county down. Yeah, it's really close to another tune that I always confuse it with. Yes, yes. And, um, uh, I don't know. Should I tell that story? Oh, you should. You should. It's a great story. <laughs> well, so so Crawford and I have discussed this hymn back and forth for years because, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's really peppy. Let's just say it's really, really peppy. It is very peppy. But during during Lent a few years ago, we had our um, soup supper and singing time before a, 
a Wednesday night prayer service at the church, the Lutheran church where I worked. One day, one of the hymn requests was the Canticle of Turning, and the youth leader ran to her office, grabbed her guitar, and we jammed out to it. And my little child in utero leapt with rejoicing at this hymn. So I, it now has a very special place in my heart. Which is just such a great image because the Magnificat is sung, you know, in response to John the Baptist leaping in the womb, which is just, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yes. It was such like, a, oh, I'm tearing up right now. It was just such a wonderful... Now, now I have a very soft spot in my heart. I think heart. that's quite understandable. Yeah, so tell out my soul Carver's the greatness like, of the Lord. But I or... don't have a soft spot in my heart. <laughs> well, we all have soft spots for different things. Yeah, but, but either either tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord or the canticle tell of the Tell out my soul, which is gorgeous. There are a few other different paraphrases of the Magnificat that work mm-hmm. really well. It's a setting of the scripture, so it's not even like in some traditions, people are uncomfortable with anything that is um not that it isn't included in the Bible because of course Mary comforted her baby child, but there's no specific scriptural text that said, and then Mary sang a lullaby and it was this. Right, so right. in some churches it would be very appropriate to sing one of the many, many Marian lullabies, but in some churches that wouldn't be something that people are comfortable yeah, with. Yeah, so this is an idea of something you can do for that fourth Sunday of Advent. Regardless of your tradition. In the year when the reading is the visitation, that's directly appropriate. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. But I, I mean, I'm always up for a good Marian hymn, so. And then also, <laughs> of course, if you're, if you're in a church that you know embraces singing hymns to and about the Virgin Mary, then this is a big opportunity to go for that. Yes. What we're singing this Advent for is Sweet Was the Song by William Matthias, which is one of the lullaby songs, right? So Lule, Lula, whatever the text is. And I've just been impressed by how complex it sounds without being actually that complicated because it's strophic. So the choir part repeats and then you have a soprano solo. It's really great. Oh, that's lovely. It really is. Yeah. So there's something else I wanted to talk about with you, uh, which I'm going to spring on you at this moment. Ah. While we're discussing Advent. What do you think about repeating certain pieces in the organ repertoire for kind of key moments in the church year as an aural cue? You know, you and I have talked before about how incense is a kind of olfactory cue to a certain Mm -hmm. mental place. What do you think about using the same music, you know, for maybe one particular Sunday prelude or something? Like I'm thinking the first Sunday of Advent, I always do Jeanne de Monsieur's Rurate Chaley, and it starts oh, out so quietly. And after I've done it for three years now, it feels like, oh, that that really is Advent. And I was wondering if you Advent had, has begun. Yeah, I was wondering if you had any pieces like that that kind of, you know, they can be really simple. That. And they're like your mm-hmm. aural cue that this season has begun. Mm. I'm thinking of the season of Christmas Eve. I often play a setting by Alfred Fedek of God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. It's very dramatic. Congregations love it. And it's a lot of fun to play. But in terms of the beginning of Advent, my oral cue is actually comfort, comfort, you might Oh, people. that's beautiful. That's really my You mentioned cue. that you oftentimes have the choir sing that in four-part harmony. Yeah, I've, I've done that before. That's a really lovely idea. Yeah. Because I think we talk sometimes a lot about variety, and that is really important. We want, we do want variety in the mm-hmm. work that we do, mm-hmm. but also deep familiarity can be such a beautiful thing in a liturgical yeah. setting. You know, it allows mm-hmm. the congregation mm-hmm. to access parts of their memory that they can then draw on again, you know. So, okay, I remember mm-hmm. Advent last mm-hmm. year, and I remember Advent from the year before, and you mm-hmm. remember where you were at various times in your life mm-hmm. when you heard the same music, you know, and you might not even do that consciously. Mm. 
This goes back to what John Duick was saying back in, all the way back in episode one, where, why did he feel welcomed when he heard this music? Yes, because he yes, was welcomed yes. when he heard this music. And so you carry all these associations with you. And why do people sing the Hallelujah Chorus all the time? Because of all those associations. I mean, it's a great piece of music. It's fine. But but why? Because of all those associations that have accrued really over a couple of centuries. Right. Well, it's like you were just mentioning about your associations with the Canticle of the Turning. Mm-hmm. Like you have this powerful emotional experience with that music. So those are some of our thoughts about planning for the four Sundays of Advent. If any of our listeners have any ideas about ways to incorporate an arch narrative, you know, so that, so that you have a sort of consistency from year to year in your Advent planning, whether it's hymns, choir anthems, voluntaries, anything else, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, it's such a wonderful season of year, and I'm I'm glad we get it every year. Yes. Today's conversation is with Dr. Carrie Allen Tipton. She's a musicologist who hosts the podcast Notes on Bach, which is sponsored by the Bach Society Houston. It's a monthly series of interviews with scholars and musicians who work with Baroque music and issues around music, like theology. Carrie is also a specialist on music and food. If you're curious about that side of her work, you can check out her website, carrieallentipton.com, and get links to articles she's written. Which includes one that is about fruitcake, which... Hey, it's Advent Christmas. It's fruitcake time. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm sending you a fruitcake. <laughs> give me, give me oh, all the fruitcakes. Oh, we're, we're, we're talking about good fruitcake. We're not talking about a doorstopper. I've been doing this since I was in high school, and I found out that my organ teacher loved fruitcake, of all things. I started making fruitcake for my organ teacher back in the day. I usually save a piece of your Christmas fruitcake in my fridge and like eat it whenever I'm feeling sad. It's a wonderful thing. Although I recently finished eating it. So, well, it's. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they last, but not that long. Yeah, there's a lot of sugar and alcohol in a fruitcake. Oh, anyway, back to the conversation with Carrie. Uh, We're talking about how we've used our mindset as researchers to enrich the ministry we have as church musicians. And one thing we discuss is how we've approached spirituals as white musicians who work in predominantly white congregations. And for me, at least, by predominantly white congregations, I have to say one of the congregations I currently work in is in rural Ohio. And the only person of color that I've ever seen in the church is a member of my own family. So predominantly or even almost entirely white congregations. Carrie's doctoral research was on Black gospel music, and one aspect of my doctoral research was racism and theologies of music. In our conversation, I mentioned asking African-American colleagues of mine about singing spirituals in predominantly white church choirs. And I want to mention that one great resource is Andre J. Thomas's book, Way Over in Beulah Land, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes, musicandthechurch.com slash blog slash episode five. You may know Thomas as a composer and arranger. We actually just sang his classic arrangement of Keep Your Lamps Trimmed and Burning at one of the churches where I work. But he's also a professor at Florida State University. And this book is a practical guide to performing spirituals and a great place to start if you want to learn more about singing spirituals in a predominantly white space. Before I became a scholar of sacred music, I was a professional church musician, either part-time or full-time for a number of years. So being an active church musician for me came first. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think that's common. For a lot of musicians, yeah. I think it really is. And when I started researching sacred music, what happened was that it opened my eyes to the fact that I had been dealing professionally with a relatively narrow uh, slice of sacred music that was out there. 
So for me, in some ways, any type of sacred music that I researched ended up informing my sacred music practice just because it deepened and widened the streams that I had access to as a pianist, as a choir director, as a music coordinator. Those are some of the different positions I had had. So I can give you a quick example. In grad school, I did a project dealing with sacred harp music. And it was something that I had never come in contact with before. And most of the people at the time I was working in a Presbyterian church, most of those people had also never come in contact with it. So I had a guy that worked with me on staff who was really good at choral arrangements. And I brought him a couple of pieces from the Sacred Harp, from one of the editions of the Sacred Harp, and was like, hey, can you arrange this for an offertory? For, you know, and, and he did. And so it introduced the whole congregation or most of them to Sacred Harp singing. So I mean, I think that's one example, but I think... There are ways that almost any sacred music tradition, at least within the Christian tradition, can be drawn on in most churches or denominations. I think there are ways mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. It's going to look really different depending on the denomination in the church. So that's kind of a non-answer, yeah. but yeah. I would say all of them at some level, you know? Well, yeah, because like there are a few traditions where it's like, well, this is what we sing and we don't sing anything else. Like I'm yes, thinking of like yes. orthodoxy. Yes. But most churches, you can pull in so many, yes. so many diverse areas and, yes. and have people appreciate it and connect with what basically their brothers and sisters in Christ did in previous centuries, you know, like in, yes. in the context of like us as a universal church. Where yes. it's not that far of a step to be experiencing Christian music of a different time or place. Mm-hmm. And if you are a, a church musician who is interested in doing this, I think there are ways to think creatively about how you can do this. If you have a congregation that maybe is super conservative in terms of their musical choices, maybe a way to introduce another sacred music stream is to tweak, is, is to build on something that they already know. So for example, maybe singing an old text to a different tune than it's usually paired with in your church. A familiar text, but sing it to a different tune, either a newly composed one or one that's been around for a while, but the congregation has never sung it paired with that text. Or you could, for example, incorporate a piece of repertoire from a different Christian tradition into the prelude or the offertory. Mm, yeah. You yeah. know, it, it does. I think it doesn't always look like I'm just going to go in and renovate the entire worship service with all this <laughs> yeah. cool new stuff that I've learned. You know, if you have a church that's open to this, um, maybe playing recordings as a postlude as people are kind of mingling and talking, maybe some recordings of a different, or, or it doesn't even have to happen during a worship start. You can be extra liturgical and um, you can offer a workshop that, hey, I'm going to frame this as a historical enterprise. Come learn about this type of hymnody or whatever. Have you have you ever done something like that? Yeah, I've done a little bit of that because back in grad school, I really got interested in Sacred Heart and started singing it recreationally and kind of wanted to introduce my congregation to that both as a a form of sacred practice, but also as a hobby, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's pretty easy to pull together just a short Saturday workshop and you can have your choir members come. They can bring friends. Anybody in the church who wants to can come. And, you know, you can even have a practitioner from that different tradition come and maybe show them, here's how you read seven shape fossil law music or whatever. That's something I could talk about for a long time that my research has really shaped the way that I do sacred music and probably vice versa. I feel like sacred harp is a pretty easy jump because there are some shape note hymns already in many Protestant hymnals and some some Catholic hymnals. And and you're it's more about a different style, a different way of reading. You can even start with holy manna. Like that's a shape note note tune and a lot of people Yeah, exactly. And people will know Uh that hymn and Mm -hmm. as a as a way to think about it. Yep. And so you give them something familiar to kind of latch on to. Exactly. Exactly. So what about gospel quartet music? Yeah, I th- this is where things get a little bit tricky for me. I'm just going to give some four example scenarios, and I think you'll see what I mean. So when I'm dealing with Black gospel quartet music, especially as like a historical thing, the, the mid-century tradition, 
it's a little bit hard for me to envision importing that into, let's say, a majority white congregation, if that, because that has tended to be where I've worked professionally. Um, it's been mostly Presbyterian churches for me the last 20 years. And in the South, those are oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes majority white. And oftentimes their worship reflects that. If I were to somehow, for example, bring in an African-American gospel quartet to sing an offertory or something like that, I would feel a little bit like I was encouraging a f- kind of a form of musical tourism mm-hmm. yeah. or spectatorship where, oh, here's this novelty. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, I do. Sort of decontextualizing it from its own tradition and bringing them in, almost like a token. Like, here, let's listen to these. Gr- I don't know. So I don't know that that's what that would look like for me. I can tell you that a couple of years ago in Texas, I substituted as a pianist for a Unitarian church, and it was a much more diverse congregation. And so a friend of mine and I actually did work with a local Black gospel quartet to come in and do the entire service for the Unitarian church. I think that that worked because the congregation was much more diverse ethnically and racially than where I have had a lot of my church music experience. I don't think that I would have done that for a majority white congregation. Again, just because the fear of tokenism, of just sort of feeling like I'm creating a moment of tourism or spectacle or consumption, kind of here's the other and we're going to look at them and really enjoy this novelty. So one way that I have drawn on not necessarily the quartet tradition, but the Black gospel or Black sacred song tradition in my own church work is to play piano arrangements of spirituals. To me, that's been a simple way of offering some of the richness of that tradition to majority white congregations, maybe a a piano offertory of Deep River, or maybe Mm -hmm. a a keyboard prelude on um, Roll Jordan Roll or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But in terms of bringing in Black performers to an all-white, that's just tough for me. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? It's making me think of a, I was at a SEM conference, Society of Ethnomusicology conference a couple of years ago, and I was working in a Lutheran church that was majority white. I was at this conference and listening to a paper on Moses Hogan. And I talked with several women who were African-American choir directors afterwards, asking them for their input on how can I do spirituals with this almost all white choir? Because I know that there were people in the choir who wanted to sing spirituals. Yeah, and I was absolutely. like, like how, do, how do I do this? And oh, by the way, we definitely can't actually sing Moses Hogan arrangements for the most part because we're not at that level. Yeah, they're tough. Yeah. And the women that I was talking with were very much saying, oh, absolutely, you should be singing that. And admittedly, like having the choir sing that is different from having a group come in in a yes, kind of yes, uh, kind a of performance or possibly entertaining kind of way. Yeah. And so so we did. I, I programmed a spiritual in the spring and I ended up having conversations with choir members, um, one of whom actually was from Nashville. And she's mm. like, you know, I'm not, I feel uncomfortable with what we're doing. And I, and I was like, well, mm. I want to take my cue from my African-American colleagues. I want to follow what they're saying. So did her discomfort come from a place of concern about appropriating minority culture? Was that no, I think. I think it was in in terms of like whether to drop final consonants or not. And okay, and that okay, was something okay. that was yep. something that I had talked with my Didn't colleagues about. Okay. Should we drop consonants or not? What should, what should we be doing? And and my colleagues were saying, no, this is think about it in terms of performance practice. And it's not mm. just about mm-hmm. singing a tune. You also want mm. to have you also want to approach an authentic performance practice, and that's what you need to be doing. Sing it like it's written. And if your arranger mm. wrote it like that, that's how you should be singing it. And you know, again, I, I boy, feel, isn't that tough to navigate all oh, those things? Oh, oh, it is, it is. But I also don't want to say, oh, I'm a white choir director leading a mostly white choir. I will never sing a spiritual. I mean, I, I don't think that that's the answer that's either. That's a point. Yeah, yeah. Like just totally disengage. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, again, we we are the, I, I for me, I feel like we're the universal church and we can mm. sing the music of other Christians in times and places and different cultural groups and ethnicities. And I think that that's a good thing in a church. Well, I think some of what you raise is an issue that comes up again and again in hymnology, hymn studies, professional sacred music, 
period, which is to what extent is a choir director or a church musician supposed to be an educator, supposed oh, to be yeah. a pedagogue yeah. and stretch the the knowledge and the experience of the congregation. And I think that especially for people who have studied sacred music from an academic perspective, I think that's a way that we can really contribute to the church is by thinking of ourselves, as, you know, you don't want to be pedantic and oh, you yeah. don't want to be patronizing, but maybe there is really a pedagogical role there that is important and can be embraced. Yeah, Absolutely. One of the things I love about being a church musician is that I'm also a musicologist and an ethnomusicologist. And that mindset is really, it really informs the work that I do and how I, how I approach things. I feel like it gives you a certain kind of curiosity and yes. openness and a realization that the way things are here isn't the way things are everywhere or that the way things yes, are here yes. is not, not the normal. Yeah, yes. which I I mean especially totally. as a totally. as a sub a lot of people talk about their church service as the normal way of doing things and I'm always yes. like no 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 how do you really sing the doxology here because there's like four different ways of doing it <laughs> yes. and every church thinks their way yes. is normal. Yes. I made some notes before we talked and that was one of the words that I used was I, I've really run into congregations where their own habits have become so normalized that any deviation from them they think that you're introducing some novelty mm -hmm. and sometimes it can really be helpful to draw on your academic background and say, no, this is not a novelty. This is actually a common practice. Mm -hmm. If you look back at the last two millennia of Christian practice, mm -hmm. and I can give you an example that stands out to me. I was kind of the music minister or coordinator at this Presbyterian church a number of years ago, and we took the old Augustus Top Lady text, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And I don't know if you grew up singing it to a certain tune, but I know a lot of people in Southern evangelical circles grew up singing, and I don't remember the name of the tune, but it's bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 rock of yes. ages, yep. cleft for me. Okay. Mm -hmm. So one day at this Presbyterian church, I had the congregation sing it to a different tune. And this woman came up afterwards and was really confront really confrontational and really upset and felt that I had... Um, I mean, I can't remember what exact terminology she used, but it was definitely in the category of right and wrong. Uh -huh. Like, this is the wrong melody. Do you, do you not know the real melody? And so I was able to, because of my background as a sacred music historian, I was actually able to explain to her, hey, actually, the longstanding practice of the Christian church has been flexibility when hearing tunes with oh, texts. Yeah. And yeah. it wasn't until the last century or two in the United States that it became common for one tune to become attached to a single mm -hmm. text. And mm -hmm. I explained to her, the tune that you are familiar or, you know, with singing Rock of Ages too, that wasn't composed for that text. That was attached to it later. And, and I, I had an opportunity to explain to her the way that hymn texts oftentimes are designed metrically so that you can pair them. And I showed her the metrical. See, a lot of people, they, they don't look know at what the, the metrical, metrical index is. Index yeah. and they like, have what no is idea that? what that is. And when I was, yeah, I mean, I'm the, I'm the kid of a Baptist preacher. I grew up in church. I, you know, I've, I've been playing the piano since I was four. I did not know what the metrical index was until I started studying sacred yep, music. Me too. I mean, was it the same for you too? <laughs> someone explained to me in high school and I was like, what? That's what that is? Oh, if somebody had explained that to me in high school, it just would have blown my I don't know if I thought it was some kind of Da Vinci Code thing <gasps> at the end of the hymn or what, but I had no idea. So I was able to speak to this woman and say, hey, I get your discomfort. Can I help you think about that from a historical yeah, perspective? Yeah. Did you tell her about those hymn books where you can like flip the, you know, like they're, yes, they're divided? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yes, I did. It, you know, so I gave her a bunch of historical examples, but I did wind up by saying, hey, I understand your emotional investment in this tune because I will be honest with you, when I think of Rock of Ages, that is the tune that comes to my head too. And that is the tune that 
I know has been in the hearts and mouths of my own family in Arkansas and Alabama. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get Mm -hmm. it. I understand. So I think that that's a way that being a sacred music historian can help you. You can kind of bring in the pedagogy, but also as a practitioner, you can understand the emotional investment that your congregation has in doing things the way that they think are normalized, whether or not they're right or not, you know? Yeah. Well, this this reminds me of how hymn arrangements or chorale preludes work, which is that you have this tune that you associate a text with, and so you can worship in a way by calling up the text in your mind as you listen to the hymn arrangement, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's exactly. I talk about it as inner inner singing in my in my research. Oh, I like that. I've yeah. never but instead of like inner like speech because that. that's that's like a normal yeah. thing. Oh, we have our inner speech. We have our inner monologue. Well, we can also have inner singing as we worship inner by singing. listening. Did to you the, come up with that? Um, I think so. I like that. I should probably verify in my dissertation. Like I'm pretty sure that's one I came up with. I really like that. I've always struggled to. Yeah. Th- I, I I like it because it connects with the inner speech, which people are. If you've yes. ever thought about like uh, like work with children and oh, you know, they're learning to internalize their speech. Yes. I'm stealing it. (laughs) Yeah, do it. I'll credit you for stealing it. (laughs) Hey, I checked it out. Inner singing is a term I came up with, and I wrote a blog post to explain the concept a bit more. Musicandthechurch.com slash blog slash inner singing. Okay, back to the interview. I think the average person outside of musicology doesn't actually know what we do in the depth in which we study. And then if you add that into the love of tradition that characterizes many congregations, um, you sort of have a double whammy of, I don't know what you do. And I'm sure that it's not relevant anyway, because this is how we... Yeah, because this is how we do things. Yeah. I think for me, it's especially relevant because churches are often concerned about how we're going to attract new members. And the line is, well, if we bring in a drum set, if we do whatever, of course we will attract new members. And I'm like, well, there's literally been studies done on this. And I can tell you about them. (laughs) Yes. Not necessarily going to work out for you. No, absolutely. And and that, (laughs) I mean, unfortunately, I would love, I would love for churches to be, uh, to be thriving, but that isn't necessarily based on your instrumentation. Yeah, it's not. And I think it's also not based on numbers. I I think I've come to have a different definition of what it means for a church to be thriving. And this is, I'm, I'm approaching this more from a personal angle than from a professional or musicological one. I'm speaking here as a practicer of the faith. Um, Thriving means something different to me than it did. Just because it's a small group doesn't mean that it can't be full of love and full of um, full of life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that one of the, um, th- and there's a lot we could say critiquing evangelicalism, but for me, one of the big issues with evangelicalism is the focus on size and numbers and that that is an indicator of spiritual health. And I think that that spills over into culture war mentality. Well, it also relates to this idea of like, if new members to your church are not coming because they've moved or because they have been brought into Christianity as new Christians, they're coming because they've chosen to not go somewhere else. I think that we should go with what you just mentioned, where you're talking about church growth and selection. And I would like us to go there about how a consumerist mentality in Western American Christianity intersects with the practice of sacred music and how a church makes decisions about that. Because you mentioned something a minute ago that I've also run into, which is this idea that if we just program more contemporary or upbeat music, it will reach younger people or whoever, you know, fill in the blank and it will bring them in. And I think what it's assuming on the part of people who may come to your church is that they are approaching church selection and choice with a highly consumeristic mentality. Like I'm going to come and worship is something that I consume and it needs to be a style that I already like. And so do you want to talk about that? I, I just think that's it's, a really it, This is actually reminding me of a 
book it's literally on my desk right now contemporary worship music and everyday musical lives by mark porter and i interviewed him uh, a week ago today now mm. he is talking about the metaphor of consumption we were talking about the word omnivorous versus blended and what that does and, and omnivorous you know has this mm. idea of food and consuming but we don't want to consume because we're in church and but in fact that often is what what we're doing I, I don't know. I've been in I've been in so many churches where the idea is music and other aspects of the service are there for people. This is what the people need, and this is this is what they get. Rather than like this is our offering to God. This is our worship of God. Mm-hmm. More of a horizontal concern rather yeah. than vertical. Yeah, it's a. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know as a as a church musician how to work against that or to um how to encourage a fuller understanding of what the church service is for. I feel like sometimes, much as I think of myself as a pastoral musician, I'm not the pastor. And that's the kind mm-hmm. of spiritual education that I feel like needs to be coming from pastoral leadership. Especially for me, like yeah, working in so good. many different denominations, sometimes I'm like, oh, what's exactly how does this church think of itself ecclesiastically? Mm-hmm. Because because mm-hmm. churches do Definitely. think of themselves differently and conceptualized what the they local do, congregations yeah, and even the purpose of the church service. Yes. I mean, if you're not having a Eucharistic yes. celebration, that's, that's a very different understanding of what the yep. church service is. It Exactly. I'm currently part of an Anglican church and I play there occasionally, but not mm-hmm, in a professional mm-hmm. capacity, which I really appreciate. And um, yeah, it's a completely different way of thinking about the purpose of worship. It is not primarily about meeting the aesthetic needs yeah. of the congregation, although certainly the collective voice of the music at our church, I would say, arises from the styles that are already mm-hmm, there in mm-hmm. the congregation because we're in Nashville. Yeah. And so that's kind of yeah. a different, we have some really exceptionally great musicians at our church. I would say that we skew a little bit more Americana in our sound. It's not it's not a classical. But that's kind of because of where where your part. people are. This is who we are and we're expressing ourselves. Organic, this, these are yeah, the gifts exactly. of the people in the body yep. of Christ. Yeah, exactly. And I like how they do that. But at the same time, you don't get the, the impression that the people who come there are there, quote unquote, because they like the music, end quote. Because the the liturgical framework is kind of about something mm-hmm, bigger than mm-hmm. that. And it, it emphasizes a little bit more of a um a vertical devotional yeah. aspect rather yeah. than a horizontal. I feel aspect. like when you have a Eucharistic celebration as part of your regular Sunday worship. It's mm-hmm. it's putting a completely different understanding of the service. This recently in in my own podcast, this came up with my most recent guest, who whom I think you mm-hmm. have met, yeah, Kiara met her this summer. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that she emphasizes in her huge and wonderful book about music in the 16th century in Europe, church music in the 16th century, is she emphasizes that the mentality of the church prior to the Reformation was a pretty unified idea that the Eucharist or the Mass was an offering to Mm -hmm. God. And that anything that surrounded that offering musically was also an offering to God. It was not primarily for the edification or aesthetic pleasure of the humans. It was more like, this is a stretch, but I would say, she didn't say this, this is me. I would say it was more correlated to the Old Testament Jewish understanding of sacrifices yes. and offerings in the temple that are for God. Like a sacrifice of praise. We're going to quote the Psalms. Yes, exactly. And so then, but then kind of the Reformation comes along and people start to think about the Eucharist and the church service a little bit differently. And I think that that is part of where kind of the more horizontal dimensions of worship in the West just became a little bit more mm-hmm. foregrounded mm-hmm. or something that people began to um, comment. I think that actually goes back know. to this idea of the inner singing and hymn arrangements, because if you mm-hmm. think that music can be a gift to God and offering to God. It doesn't have to be texted, right? But mm, if you're thinking exactly. I need yes. to have the congregation members 
If I need to have the congregation engaged with this music mentally, then it needs to have an associated yes. text. So if it's not yep. actual congregational singing or you know some ensemble singing words that they can understand in the vernacular, then it needs to be a hymn tune that they're going to understand, mm -hmm. right? And then they could call up these words. Yes, to give them something. And by to latch thinking on those words, they are then worshiping, right? Yep. Exactly. And it gets into language choice, too. And I mean, this is something else I talked about with Kiara mm -hmm. on the show is that, um, you know, it kind of goes a long way towards explaining why what we now call the Roman Catholic Church for a long, long time was was OK with ceremonial Latin, even in instances where people might not have fully understood mm -hmm. what was going on, because humans were not the primary yeah. target. That relates to the direction of the altar and acoustical yep. space in churches. Absolutely. If it doesn't matter if you can understand the words, you don't have to have an acoustic space where you can hear words. Absolutely. <laughs> Yep. You don't need it's an really, elevated really pulpit. You don't need sound dampening materials. You yeah. don't need to hang any curtains. That's mm -hmm. really different priorities that work themselves out in so many ways, not just in terms of mm -hmm. the language. Working at the Bach Society of Houston and hosting a podcast on Bach, are there things that you've learned that you think that would be really interesting to our listeners? Yes. Um, the example that I was just giving a moment ago, the show that I just released, which is the October episode. I'll have a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Okay, that would be great. It featured this wonderful Italian musicologist talking about her work. The name of her book is Reformations in Music, and then it's got a long subtitle, Music and the Religious Reformations of the 16th Century. Reading her book, really drove home to me, going back to the Eucharist, the centrality of understanding the different theological positions on the Eucharist and how those impact public worship. And that was something I had never really grasped before I read her book. That is just one example of how a single episode has been transformative to me, just as a, a sacred music scholar and a practitioner of sacred music, by forcing me to really dig in theologically about a specific topic that on the surface, especially to evangelicals, may seem a little just sort of disconnected or a standalone part of the service. But that has not been the case in the historic Christian faith. What you think about the Eucharist in many, many Christian streams of worship, I would say it directly determines how you worship. And so her book was really big for me. Any of the episodes that I've released, people can take away something. Another one that might be of interest to just general listeners was the very first episode that I did a year ago. And it was about challenging misconceptions about early Lutheran music. Mm. And that sounds like something, well, who, who even has a conception of it? Okay. There is this mythology that I think most evangelicals and or Protestants have probably been brought up with that Luther single-handedly got the people of oh, God yeah. to sing in oh, the vernacular. Yeah. <laughs> and before him, Nobody ever sang. Yeah, exactly. The single-handed champion of vernacular worship music and he, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I had this guest on the show. His name is Dr. Joseph Hurl, and he's at Concordia University. And he wrote a wonderful book called Worship Wars in Early Lutheranism. And he did a great job of breaking down his central arguments to where a non-specialist could understand them. But it's a great example of a scholar who took a common myth that has passed into non-academic circles, this idea of Luther as the first champion of congregational song. And after him, you know, like within a year of him posting the theses, Germans across the land were belting out a mighty fortress in Germany. Okay, it wasn't like that. And he goes to great lengths in his book to document how congregational singing in German-speaking territories was really, really sparse at best really? for many, many years. And there was not this sudden revolution of congregational song. It took a long time for Lutherans to actually become a singing people. Is this any sort of encouragement to present-day Catholics? 
Catholics who, you know, why can't Catholics sing that kind of that kind of mentality? Like thinking, oh, well, yes. you, you have to yes. go through generation of generation of people thinking that this is normal yes. and a good yes. thing to do in church and learning the repertoire, having it sung to you as a child. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. takes time. Yeah. And so that's an example of an episode where I think just anyone who's interested in church music or the practice of Christianity, especially in the West, could find that really interesting. What I'm always trying to do is find scholars who have done work that either a non-specialist can read directly and get a lot out of, or they can hear the scholar talk about it in accessible language and get the thrust of it. That is the goal of the show, is to connect interested people with accessible scholarship about Bach, the Lutheran tradition, and a little bit more broadly from there, too. For people who are church musicians that may be interested in more academic perspectives like what Sarah and I have been talking about, stuff is out there. And this is one of the reasons I really wanted to launch the Bach podcast. A lot of people don't know what is out there in terms of academic writing about music history or church music because it tends to be published by different presses. Oh, yeah. And it's expensive and it's behind paywalls. It's very expensive. Exactly. So what I would recommend is that if you have an interest in finding academic resources about church music, If you visit the websites of different university press publishers, and you can just start Googling, you will find book list after book list after book list. And what you can do as you click through the book lists, if you find a title that's of interest to you, you can get on Amazon and see if you can find it used or on eBay or see if you can borrow Mm -hmm. it from your public library. Yes, you can Mm -hmm. or interlibrary loan or see if some of it is available digitally Mm -hmm. on Google Books go to the press's website and maybe they publish an excerpt of it. So I would just encourage people, there there are wonderful resources out there written by academics, but I sometimes think they are not getting any further than academia, even though there are people out there who are so interested in the history and philosophy of what we're talking University about. University of Illinois and University of Mississippi both have American music series, but of course American music yes. includes yes. gospel music and American Absolutely. choral music yep. that is right up the alley of church musicians. Mm-hmm. Or email, yeah, I'm going to mm-hmm. volunteer as both, mm-hmm. email me. Yeah. Or, or Sarah, yeah. you know, I, I love to connect people with academic resources that I think are accessible because I think there's really a wealth of thought about sacred music practice and people that love to think and talk about these things in the church that don't know that some of those resources are out there. My mom actually, mm-hmm. she lives in Mississippi and some of the books that she's heard about on my podcast, she has been so interested in, she gets them through interlibrary loan. So she's not paying $120 for an academic book, but she's able And talk to a librarian because if your library doesn't have it, they might be able to tell you how they could get it or maybe they could yes, even purchase, they it. purchase yeah. it. Yeah, worth a shot. Yep, absolutely. I've done all those things. This has been such a yep. pleasure and I'm so glad yes. we got connected. Yeah, me too. That was Dr. Carrie Allen Tipton. You can find out more about Carrie's work on her website, carrieallentipton.com, and you can find her podcast by searching for Notes on Bach in your podcast player or by going to bachsocietyhouston.org slash notesonbach. To get links to all the resources we mentioned today, including the slew of Advent music we talked about, head over to our show notes, musicandthechurch.com slash blog slash episode five. Shoot us an email at musicandthechurch at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 513 580 4282. We'd love to hear from you. 